This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. In 1981, American journalist David Ost attended an extraordinary meeting in the Polish city of Bydgoszcz. I wondered if they let me in. I was writing articles at the time for a weekly newspaper out of Chicago called In These Times. And they let me in, you know, because they were very happy to get publicity of all kinds. The meeting was organized by a group named Solidarity, which became the first legally sanctioned trade union in the Warsaw Pact. It was a remarkable concession by a communist regime whose authority was based on the fact the country was controlled by the workers, to acknowledge there was even a need for such a group. What I saw really make my jaw drop. There were meetings going on. They were all raising their hand in order, you know, we want to speak, we want to have our voice. One of the people who showed me around was pointing to this event where all the people are participating and raising their hand and the meetings have been going on for a couple of hours. And he kind of sheepishly turned to me and said, Ari, we don't know how to do democracy so well. And I said to him that this was more participatory and more real democracy than I had ever seen. This minor freedom had been hard fought, but it was short lived. Within months, Solidarity had been banned, and the whole of Poland was subjected to martial law. In this episode, I talk to David Ost, Hobart and William Smith Professor of Politics, about Solidarity and Poland's arduous journey from communism to the present day. In December 1970, a bad harvest rocked the economy and the communist regime of Poland. The government responded by rapidly raising prices. Just two years after the Warsaw Pact had crushed protests during the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, East Europeans were once again organising mass protests against the totalitarian regime, as David Ost explains. There were these very large strikes in Gdansk and in Szczecin, the same place where there would be the strikes that started Solidarity 10 years later. Those were strikes against the cutbacks, against food price increases. But those strikes had ended with what was the biggest single state-sponsored atrocity of the entire post-war period. That is when the government in Gdansk killed several dozen strikers who were going to work at the shipyard and try to end the strike in that way. That strike had been marked by going out into the 
downtown and marching against the party. That's what led to the big crisis and to the shooting. After the strikes in 1970, the government kind of made things better materially for the next several years. Six years later, with the country enduring more difficulties, again, food prices were raised by as much as 100%. Another round of protests quickly ensued. In 1976, the strikes were more localized, but it came in a context where the intelligentsia, particularly those democratically minded intelligentsia, mostly in the big cities, had been aware that there hadn't been much contact between students or intellectuals and workers previously. And so in 1976, Workers went on strike. They immediately got repressed again. Then what happened is that these intellectuals formed this group called KOR, CORE, the Committee to Defend the Workers, to provide them with lawyers for their trials, to aid their families. And this created some greater trust between them. So you already had lingering protest and anger on the part of workers and ship workers who remember 1970, price increases and this declining standard of living. So 1976 was the last big workers' protest before 1980, but it also prepared both a certain group of workers and this group of intellectuals to be ready for the next time that working-class protest would emerge. The oil crisis of the late 1970s, an excessive debt added to Poland's economic troubles. But a new flashpoint sparked dissent in 1980, when worker Anna Valentinovich was fired from her job at the Gdansk shipyard just months before she was due to retire. Price hikes had already caused protests, but Valentinovich's treatment gave a face and a singular rallying point to the protesters. Valentinovich, she had been fired for being an activist, and that became the cause around which the Committee for Free Trade Unions, they had organized in her defense. They didn't know that Valentinovich was going to be sacked, but this group of certain numbers of workers there and intellectuals who were supporting them were prepared for when a strike breaks out, then we're ready to coordinate it. And Lech Wałęsa was part of that group. Then that group went into focus and said, OK, we've got to get Wałęsa there into the shipyard to have him lead the strike because it's also part of our movement. I returned to Poland in September 1981. This was still during the legal solidarity period. And I saw similar things all over. Meetings, that kind of commitment to everyone having their voice, getting the word out, massive publicity, really a festival of democracy. In December 1979, Months before the protests began in Poland, the Soviet Red Army had invaded Afghanistan. It's been suggested the deployment of huge numbers of troops to Asia prevented the Soviets from sending the military to quell the protests in Poland. But there were other factors at play. 
there were a lot of other considerations that the Soviets always had in connection with Poland. 1956 and 1968, these were the times when the Soviet Union did intervene, sent in troops to quash emerging reformist or anti-communist movements in Hungary in 56, in Czechoslovakia in 68. But in 56, Poland also went through a massive political upheaval, and the Soviets didn't send in troops there. Poland is a much larger country than any of the others. It's at about just under 40 million back then and still today, whereas Hungary had just under 10 million. They knew that it would be quite difficult to do in Poland, that there would be a great deal of resistance. There had been armed resistance in 1956 in Hungary, not in Czechoslovakia in 1968, but in Poland, there would have been an underground rebellion. What the Soviets did is put pressure on party leaders in Poland to take things under control themselves. And uh, here, too, I can recall that I experienced myself being in Poland by around October, November, whereas previously the government had done its best to try to quell strikes wherever they broke out, that now the government was not trying to do that. Strikes would break out. They say, we demand government come here and talk with us. And then they wouldn't do it. And the strike would get bigger. And sometimes people would protest louder. And it seemed that the state was trying and in fact succeeded to create some kind of aura of chaos emerging that they would be able to quell. Now, solidarity was a mass movement, but we should keep in mind that mass movements anywhere in the world are never the majority of the population. People are busy. There are families with every kind of personal issues that families always go through that can't go out and participate in the streets. I mean, most people at any revolutionary time experience life normally. They're not part of that process. While there was great support for solidarity, there was also this sense that, as the state is saying, things are going awry, there's no order here anymore. That's what happened on December 13th. In other words, the Soviets were able to work with party leaders who wanted to stop this movement and were able to sell martial law In other words, I think that even without Afghanistan, an invasion of Poland would have been the very last resort. One other thing that's important is that at this time, you know, the Soviet Union, economically, it understood that it was not getting a very good deal from occupying Eastern Europe. In other words, nowadays, your listeners know very well about Russia's oil and gas market and that they have all these resources. And of course, they've been making so much money out of that. And now in light of Ukraine, the West is trying to quash those sources. During the Soviet period, in the late 1970s, you already had the price of oil skyrocketing because of the uh, OPEC boycotts. And the Soviet Union was giving gas and oil to the East European states for a pittance. They could have gotten a lot more on the world market. Economically, there were some in the Soviet Union who began thinking and calculating this occupation of Eastern Europe 
formally so isn't necessarily in our long-term interest. That was one of the reasons that were pushing some in the Soviet Union to be a little more open towards reform. It would take only a, a few more years before Gorbachev emerged, but Gorbachev was clearly someone who was one of that younger group who was thinking about that this is not really good for Russia. The communists in Poland, as elsewhere in Eastern Europe, were atheists, and attempts were made to suppress religion. These efforts were less successful in the largely Catholic Poland than elsewhere, and any modest progress was undermined in 1978 when a Polish citizen, Karol Wojtyła, was elected as the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Freedom is a great gift, a great blessing of God. He assumed the name of Pope John Paul II and made frequent trips to his homeland. But was the relationship between solidarity and the Catholic Church as cosy as the Western media portrayed it? I always felt solidarity felt much closer to the church than the church felt to solidarity. Solidarity, of course, was a new movement. The church had been, of course, in the Stalinist years, very much repressed. But by 1980, of course, you already had the Polish Pope and church was a very strong institution that was always protecting itself. The very first time the church leadership spoke about solidarity in August 1980, Cardinal Byshynski, who was the real leader of the church, he gave comments that were actually very critical of the strikers, critical because he thought this might lead to bloodshed. Solidarity was this new movement that is trying to emerge and trying to get support of this powerful institution. There were, among the leadership of Solidarity, a number of people did consider themselves socialists. They weren't hostile to the church. They both were protesting against this authoritarian state. You had religious people had become leaders in the cities where Solidarity broke up. Among that strict leadership of solidarity that helped organize the strikes in 1980, they were definitely more secular. And in fact, when martial law was imposed in December 1981, some priests did give some support to activists. Even some activists were able to hide there to escape arrest. On the other hand, very quickly, the church, now under the leadership of uh, Joseph Glemp, was working with the government, and the government then tried to overly support the church in order to also say, see, we're working for the people. So the state tried in 1982 with martial law, was more sympathetic to the church while it's imprisoning solidarity. And in 1982, you had a remarkable spate of church building throughout Poland at the time. The church was looking out for itself, but it was always for the church mainly about consolidating itself. Solidarity was something else. Prior to World War II, Poland had enjoyed 20 years as an independent state, prior to which it had been consumed by the Russian and German empires for 200 years. For people who had briefly tasted independence, nationalism 
was another factor driving the solidarity movement. From the very beginning, it was a combination of a national movement, a national uprising, and a trade union. Those elements sometimes were in tension, but while the state was so hostile to the movement as a whole, then those two elements work more in common. Poland also at at this time in 1980 had become a, a very ethnically homogeneous state. In the interwar period until 1939, it was one of the most ethnically diverse state. Tragically, I mean, the Holocaust eliminated Polish Jewry changing of borders, eliminated Ukrainians, brought them to the Soviet Union, and post-war retribution kicked out the Germans. And as a communist system, it meant that most people were workers as well, in a sense that they were employed by the state. The state was the overarching employer. In that sense, the national movement and the trade union movement kind of fit together very well. Solidarity always used this kind of national imagery. In the very beginning, in August 1980, before the state signed the Gdansk Accord that legalized solidarity in 1980, Valenza would call for talks and we should come and talk and we can have a conversation. And they said, Jak Polaks, Polakian, you know, one Pole talking with another Pole. We are Poles, and so we should be united around these issues. And so solidarity took a role in appealing to these national values. And those kinds of issues, which to emphasize, would diverge more after martial law than during that year and a half or 16 months when solidarity was illegal and the Communist Party state was critical and wary of both aspects of this movement. In December 1981, Wojciech Jaruzelski, a general and de facto ruler of Communist Poland, imposed martial law as the government tried to suppress the growing protest movement. And other solidarity leaders are imprisoned, their fate unknown. Factories, mines, universities, and homes have been assaulted. The Polish government has trampled underfoot solemn commitments to the UN Charter and the Helsinki Accords. It has even broken the Gdansk Agreement of August 1980, by which the Polish government recognized the basic right of its people to form free trade unions and to strike. Was there ever a realistic possibility that the regime could regain total control? Or by the time martial law was imposed, was the genie of freedom already out of the bottle? Well, I think your first part was the genie out of the bottle. I think that's a great formulation, and I think you're exactly right. Martial law was a confession of the state's inability to resolve the problem. It didn't tame the movement. That is, during the 16 months, it wasn't able to tame it. It wasn't able to bring solidarity into the system. It wasn't able to restore order. And most people could see that it's not that the country really was in massive chaos. It's that there was no coordination. The state wasn't trying to resolve things. And so martial law didn't solve anything. 
Also, the government in 1980, the one that imposed martial law, even it did not say that, oh, we're now going back to the conditions before 1980. They did not say that everything that happened in the last 16 months was wrong. Workers were angry for good reasons. And then the state in the last 60 months has been trying to work with leadership to come to an agreement. But then you have these rowdy militants who are taking advantage of it. The state itself was looking for a new way out. It didn't just say we're going back to the period we had before. It suspended solidarity and suspended all trade union activity. After about a year or so, a year and a half, it allowed some trade union activity to emerge. It still did not allow solidarity. Solidarity as such would not be allowed back until 1989. But already in 1983-84, it allowed other trade unionists in the factories who really were more independent as trade unionists than had been the case in Poland before 1980. They're talking about changes. It's also the government began an economic reform program. Again, martial law was repressive. But it was also the state's effort at reform, August 1980, and the ensuing 16 months created a situation where it was obvious that the state, the whole system needs a new format, a new mode of coordination that had not been done. Martial law didn't do it itself, so they had to continue doing it. The state, of course, hoped that by its concessions to the church and its concessions to non-solidarity trade union activists, that it might get more support from below. But that really didn't happen. Solidarity had been such a mass movement. There was that underground solidarity, which itself was not very coordinated In 1986, they declared an amnesty. Of course, 1985 is when Mikhail Gorbachev came into office in the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev was already sending major signals of reform of the Soviet-type systems that prodded Jaruzelski, the Polish leaders. And then by 1986, 87, they started finding some in solidarity who were committed to negotiating with the government, which would subsequently lead to these so-called roundtable accords of 1989 that would allow the first non-communist government in 1989. There was always a faction of solidarity that did not want to talk with the state at all. They were not so significant in the late 1980s, but many of those people who took that position then, are strong in the current government today, the uh, right-wing Law and Justice Party that I'm sure your listeners have heard of because they've been in um, such conflict with the European Union in the last several years. Despite the common desire for change, even early on, cracks formed in the solidarity movement. And over time, some people saw signs of conflict forming 
between Vowensa and Anna Valentinovich, the worker whose sacking had been the catalyst for the massive strikes. After you had kind of rival groups of intellectuals and oppositionists who were dissatisfied with that leadership, the political leadership that helped bring Valencia in there, they had different views about politics, about how to organize the movement. There were some personal clashes as well. So then later, that other group started saying when Valentinovich was the real leader. I met Valentinovich a few times during this period in 1981, and I remember speaking with her. She was someone with great moral depth and someone who was very committed, active. She was not a political leader and didn't fancy herself that. My experience in 1981, that at that time, she was really not part of any group. It didn't have major rivalries. She did feel somewhat excluded by the fact that the she did feel somewhat excluded by the fact that Voenza was part of that broader political network and that Voenza did come on to lead. But I do think also that, you know, as a as an activist on the shop floor without those political connections, you know, I think myself that she would have been a worse leader at the time um, because clearly a strike in such a place like that that would turn the Gdansk shipyard, the Lenin shipyards in Gdansk, that had such symbolic value and economic value, it was going to be something that the central authorities would take a, a, a key focus in. And Valentinovich at that time did not have the circle behind her. Zapleccia, they say in Polish, did not have this group, the backing behind her. She would have been more at that time a kind of lone activist. And, you know, in any in a time like that, when the government was doing what it could to try to stop this movement, um, that it would have been a very difficult role for anyone to for anyone to play. So, you know, again, the political movement was behind that. They had contact with Valenza. And I do think that's the main reason why Valenza became the leader and not Valentinovich. In 1989, after roundtable talks, the communist regime agreed to hold free parliamentary elections. The Solidarity Citizens Committee won 99 of the 100 seats in the Senate, as well as winning all of the seats where it had candidates in the lower house of parliament. It was the end of one-party rule in Poland, and the following year, Lech Wałęsa won the presidential election. Three decades later, Poland is a member of the European Union and of NATO. Power is currently held by the Law and Justice Party, a group founded by former Solidarity member Lech Kaczynski. But their rule has been controversial, the party have clashed with other EU members about issues ranging from abortion to the independence of the judiciary. On the 4th of June 2023, hundreds of thousands of anti-government protesters rallied in Warsaw to demonstrate their opposition to the regime. Among the protesters was former president and leader of Solidarity, 
Lack for answer. Thinking back to your time in Bidgosh and that vibrant meeting you attended where you saw this pure form of democracy in action, as well as your prior and subsequent visits up to 1989, do you think the desires and wishes and aspirations of those solidarity members back then have been met and fulfilled in the modern Polish state? To some extent, at times of peaceful revolution, by which I mean that, you know, 1980, 81, a time of great imagination, forming a new kind of system. And unlike other revolutions where people are afraid for their lives, people were not afraid for their lives during that period. So it created a lot of expectations. But also 1989 really changed things. I spent time in Poland in 1981, but I was there in 1989 and spent uh, over the next decade, I probably spent about three or four years total in Poland going there regularly and staying for longer periods of time. Subsequently, I wrote a book, the title of which was The Defeat of Solidarity. I think what happened after 1989 is that the focus became almost immediately on, you know, let's build up the state. We have to conform to what Western states are doing. Let's bring about a market economy. There are different types of market economies, and they can work together closely with workers. But ironically, 1989 is very different historical international moment than 1981. 1981, you had Reagan and Thatcher had just been elected. Mitterrand was still a socialist. There was a lot of sympathy for social democracy. By 1989, that had changed. It was a kind of peak neoliberal moment. And so those in solidarity who took power and wanted, you know, and needed support from the West were being told that, okay, you know, you need to sell off your enterprises. You need to cut subsidies. And solidarity leaders themselves, including Lev Valenza, they were all committed in 1989 to calming down workers. Let's let the elite make its deals with Western governments, with private capital. Let's move in this direction. If workers protest that they have to be told that they don't exactly know what they're doing. Again, going back there in the early 1990s, a lot of those people who had been so excited in 81, right, are feeling that we have a change of system, but in some way, especially in that time, that transitional moment, things looked worse. There was a depression, there was unemployment for the first time. So there was a lot of dissatisfaction there. And I think that what happened is that the different groups in solidarity beforehand, that they both moved away from workers. The liberal leadership that it even considered itself somewhat socialist, that they were committed to building parliamentary democracy in a, a market system, working closely with the West. So they all put a dampening on workers' aspirations while you had an emerging right wing, the group that is now in power, that is focusing on nationalist elements, 
and they were making, you know, what I thought was the crazy and dangerous claim, but that's what they built their rhetoric on, talking about the group that became the law and justice today, the ones who were saying that 90, 91, 92, they said it's not capitalism that's the problem. It's that we don't have good capitalists, that these are people who are not real poles playing this exclusionary nationalist charge, which we see right-wing populist movements doing all over the place. They say, if you disagree with me, you're not just disagreeing, you're not just an opponent, you're a traitor. So that rhetoric, capitalism is good, but we have bad capitalists. They're really alien. They're really communist. And then a kind of subtext of some of them are Jews. They change their name. They're connected with Jewish capital. Both sides, it seemed to me, were really pushing away from that inclusionary, moderate, democratic, socialist vision that most people had and articulated in 1981, the kind of movement that I saw present in Bingosh and other places when I attended those meetings. Yes.